0: You're listening to the Life-Changing Discipleship Podcast. Here's the deal. If you make disciples by sitting around and talking, you shouldn't be surprised when your disciples sit around and talk and talk and talk. This is the podcast for those weary of just talking and ready to start activating in the mission Jesus gave us to change the world. The Life-Changing Discipleship Podcast, where disciples and disciple makers gather to grow and go together. Here's your host, Dr. Matt Friedemann. Hey, dear friends, so good to have you with us today. Remember, the place for a man, for a woman, completing all their powers is in the fight, the spiritual fight, and right now, today, making disciples of the nations. So stay tuned, stay encouraged. We have a rendezvous with destiny. All right, folks, listen, I'm an old talk show host. And you know, one of the, the things we used to do is, well, we talk about issues. Whatever was on the plate that day, whatever in the pile, so to speak. So we got some, we got some things in the pile today. I think we ought to probably talk about awful lot of stuff out there right now. And eventually, we want to do things like talk about who tried to cancel the Apostle Paul. It says uh, most millennials like Jesus in the Bible. Uh, they like Jesus. They like the Scripture. But how big of a percent identify as LGBTQ? What do you think? Uh, We'll tell you about that and uh, perhaps what might be the antidote to that problem. Uh, There's a one woman's six word mantra that has helped to calm millions. And I think we can do better than her mantra. And then finally, uh, the Guardian had an interesting article on how to raise a boy. Bringing up a son fit for the 21st century is just that I think we can do better than the Guardian article. We'll get to all those things here in just a minute. First, we want to talk to you about our sponsors. One of the sponsors of our program today is Wesley Biblical Seminary. Folks, I've taught here in this school for 33 years, one of the best seminaries in the world and a place where you can come and check out the various wonderful things we can offer you. We have a lay program called the Wesley Institute. we got an undergraduate program. Yep. (laughs) <laughs> We've got a college you need to discover. We've got a master's program. So actually, we have several master's programs. So we even have a doctoral, a D-Min program. Really something for all serious disciples. So check it out at wbs.edu. That's wbs.edu. All right, let's go to the pile, so to speak. Kind of a fascinating article that came out uh, in Leadership. Uh, christianity today puts out a, an interesting, uh, periodical called leadership. And so this is for Christianity today. Pastors came out in October and it was written by a guy named Nigel Gupta. And this guy is a, a provocative fella. I mean, really interesting stuff here. He says next to Jesus, of course, the apostle Paul is the w- most well-known figure of the Christian faith. Uh, he, in many ways, he's our hero. He models the faith for us. But a careful reading of his letters demonstrates that he had many enemies, both inside and outside the church. And it appears the Christians of his time found him controversial. Sectors of the Christianity of his time passionately challenged and even despised Paul and his ministry. So what do we do with that? How would we deal with our enemies, both within the church and beyond the church today? And we'd like to ask that question in light of, what did Paul do? So this is what Gupta said. He said, over the past half decade or so, I've become a soccer super fan. I watch European soccer. I watch South American soccer. I root for my local team in Oregon. There's a phrase you will hear from coaches and uh, commentators about how a struggling team must overcome obstacles in their game. And I love this because any athletic team I've ever been on was struggling and had lots of obstacles. He said, when you're struggling, when you know that you've got to seriously overcome some things. Three words. Three words. Keep your shape. When the chips are down, when the odds are stacked against you, when you're losing nil-three before halftime, follow the game plan. Remain in your designated positions. Trust your other teammates. Stay focused. Keep your shape. Now, Paul seems to have been a a, a kind of a keep-your-shape sort of leader. By that, says the author, I I mean when he saw things going wrong in the churches he founded or churches that he was responsible for, he didn't lash out at specific church leaders. Perhaps more strikingly, when outside enemies or troublemakers were involved, as it seems to be the case in Galatians, 2 Corinthians, and maybe in Philippians, Paul focused on forming his people— He did not spend his energy correcting his enemies. Now, y'all, I want want us to listen to this. Many of us feel like we're in a cultural fight. In fact, we might even say it's a fight for our lives. But it's interesting. I think Paul was in a fight for his life and a, a fight for the church's life. And yet when enemies came up, apparently he didn't try to correct the enemies. Now, we have about a dozen letters or so that Paul wrote to these churches. And, and and letters he wrote to folks like Timothy and Titus. Those are called the pastoral epistles. But we don't have any letters that Paul wrote to his enemies. By the way, wouldn't you love to see them if they if they existed? I mean, he, he could have written those letters. Maybe he should have written those letters. I mean, boy, he could have really told them off, could have warned them, could have threatened them, argued with them, tell them where they're going to go for all eternity. I mean, <laughs> he, he that'd be a Uh, quite a letter to read, but it seems that he didn't do it. Instead, he had laser-like focus on forming churches and fortifying the faith of his own people. Of course, he was worried about the negative influence of outsiders, but his focus, and and this is what's important here, his focus wasn't on him. He stayed true to his mission. He stayed true to his ministry. He kept the shape of his calling, and he refused to get distracted into engaging in theological turf wars to assuage anybody. That's impossible. Listen, you can't, you can't make everybody happy, y'all. It's impossible. We know it. We we sometimes try. Paul kept his eye on and directed his voice towards his own community. And so, what this guy says, and I love it. Nigel Gupta says. And who canceled the Apostle Paul? At the end of the day, you need to know Paul had impact because he kept his shape. And so Gupta says right to us today, hey, hey, keep your shape. Stay laser-like focused on your flock, on your people, on your family, on your Sunday school class, on your small group, on your church. Build them up to reach out to the lost, the lonely, the disenfranchised, and, yeah, maybe even love your enemy. But at the end of the day, keep your shape. I love it. Great great advice. And particularly pretty good advice for those of us who are, uh, uh, shall we say, politically focused. Uh, by the way, I mean a very dangerous thing for a Christian to be is politically focused. We're supposed to be Jesus-focused. But for those of us who have a keen political interest, At the end of the day, we can go negative all day long. If you ever heard the talk shows, they're going negative all day long. We just got to stop. We got to repent and begin understanding we need to stay focused on the flock and make them capable of being all the people God ever imagined they could be right here, right now for the glory of God. And yeah, for the fulfillment of the great commission and the great commandments to get out there and do ministry, but they're not going to be able to do it if we're all the the time trying to find the enemy to engage them. All right, there you go. Thank you for that. Boy, that's just a great article. Appreciate it so very much. This comes from the Christian Post, a Christian Post reporter called Leonardo Blair. He says, while most millennials view Jesus in the Bible at least a little positive, nearly one-third of America's largest, most educated, and misunderstood generation, or so they say, the millennials, nearly one-third of them identify as LGBT. And 75% of them admit to searching for a sense of purpose in life. Now stop right there. I think that that's a that's really important. By the way, this this report comes from uh let's see, Arizona Christian University. And by the way, that's George Barnes School now. So take that for whatever it's worth. I I just find it fascinating. And I wonder if those two things don't uh, have something to do with each other. I think what we're doing uh, too often is we're raising kids without a direction, without objectives, without knowing what their lives are really supposed to be all about. And because we're doing that, I think they're confused on all kinds of things, not the least of which confused about their sexuality. And I just think we, we need to get people again, more focused on what really matters. And when I was thinking about this, I was thinking about a guy named Charles Colson. You remember him started this great organization called prison fellowship. And, uh, he's now deceased. I had him on my radio program a few years ago. And by the way, one of the things I said to him, he wrote me a personal letter after that. And I, I obviously still have the personal letter and, uh, I, I keep it near and dear, but listen, he said, I I really appreciate what you said. And what I said was the last book my dad was reading before he died was Loving God by Chuck Colson. And so I make sure that my kids, when they were growing up, they each got a copy of that saying, hey, Charles Colson is one of the guys, your dad, me, one of the guys your dad looks up to, and this is the last book your granddad was reading before he passed away. And so I just love to give that book out, Loving God. Having said that, Chuck Colson in one of his books writes about the great Russian novelist, Fyodor Dostoevsky. And he says in the house of the dead, he wrote that if one wanted to utterly crush a man, one need only give him a work that is completely irrational. And the writer says, I I discovered this in my 10 years in prison. If he had If the prisoner had to move a heap of earth from one place to another and back again, I believe the convict would hang himself, preferring rather to die than to endure such humiliation, such shame, such torture. Well, Colson writes this. He says, some of Hitler's henchmen at a Nazi concentration camp in Hungary must have read Dostoevsky because one day Allied aircraft blasted the area and destroyed a factory. The next morning, several hundred inmates were herded to one end of its charred remains. Expecting orders to begin building, they were startled when the Nazi officer commanded them to shovel sand into carts, drag it to the other end of the plant. The next day, the process was repeated in reverse. They were ordered to move the huge pile of sand back to the other end of the compound. These prisoners were thinking, well, some kind of a stake here. Stupid swine. I mean, day after day, they hauled the same pile of sand from one end of the camp to the other. No direction, no meaning, no objective. And then Dostoevsky's prediction came true. One old man began to weep uncontrollably. The guards hauled him away. Another screamed until he was beaten into silence. Then a young man who had survived three years in that camp darted away from the group. The guards shouted for him to stop as he ran toward the uh, uh, electrified fence. The other prisoners cried out, but it was too late. There's a blinding flash and a terrible sizzling noise as smoke puffed from his smoldering flesh. In the days that followed, dozens of prisoners went crazy, went mad, and ran from the work, only to be shot by the guards or electrocuted by the fence. The commandant smugly remarked that there soon would be no more need to use a crematoria. And Chuck Colson says this, The gruesome lesson is plain. Men will cling to life with a dogged reserve while working meaningfully. Purposeless labor soon snaps the mind. Now, some of us have done this with our churches. Listen, we go to church one Sunday, and then the next Sunday we go back to the church. Then we go home and back to church that Sunday, and then back to church the next Sunday. And we just go back and forth and back and forth from our home to our church, thinking that ought to provide all the meaning my kids will ever need to have a responsible, clean life. Well, what happens when it's not enough and pretty soon all of a sudden they're rising up saying, hey, you know, I want to have a, I want to have some work done on my body so I can be the other gender. Or, hey, I I think I'm a lesbian. Or, hey, I, I think I'm queer or whatever they want to say i think this thing that was found uh is substantial by barnet and that is uh, you got 30% of our largest most educated generation that identifies lgbt uh, lgbt and 75% of them admit to searching for a sense of purpose in life. That is, they don't know what their purpose is. They don't know from Sunday to Sunday to Sunday to Sunday to back and forth and back. What are we doing this for? And that's why we ought to provide them an answer, my dear friends. We're not just doing this to get saved. We're not just doing this to uh, be good little boys and girls. We're not just doing this because the church needs our support. We're not just doing this because this is what respectable families do. We do church. We are the church because we are people in mission. That is, we want to get outside of the four walls of this church, and we want to win our world to Jesus Christ. We want to take care of the poor, the sick, the needy, the leper, the widow, the orphan. We we are outward bound. And when we cease to be outward bound, what do we cease to be? I think what we cease to be is the church. And I think what we pr- produce is a bunch of confused people. And yeah, they're confused in every way imaginable, not the least sexually. I- I'm just saying, I think if the millennials could be called a messed up generation, and I think in many ways they're admirable, but there are some ways there's no question about it, they're messed up, just like my generation, the boomers. But in as much as people are messed up, I think it, you can get it right back to that purpose thing. Are we pursuing what we ought to be pursuing with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? That is the love of God, the love of neighbor, and yes, even the love of enemy. All right. This is a, a kind of a fascinating thing. So I I probably should have known this is going to go in a strange place when it said uh, this comes from a, a magazine called Psyche Ideas. All right, so this is Psyche And uh, it was about a lady that had a six word mantra that she says has helped to uh, calm millions and millions of people. So here are the six words. You ready? Uh, This uh, supposedly has, has helped millions and millions and millions of people. So here are the words face, accept, float, let time pass. And those words expanded mean you need to meditate on these words, need to get in a place that's safe and a place that's comfortable. You need to meditate on these words, running away, not facing, fighting, not accepting, arresting and listening in, not floating past, being impatient with time, not letting time pass. All right. So that's supposed to be, that's supposed to be the thing that is going to save you from nervous illness. That six word mantra, face, accept, float, let time pass. Can I just say, I think I've got a lot better idea and I don't think it's so much my ideas. I just think if you're going to meditate on something, if you're going to get in a comfortable place, and can I just say, I do this every morning. I wake up, uh, the last couple of weeks I've been working on waking up early. I go to bed early. I wake up early. I wake up at 4 a.m., And I go to my chair and I try to relax all my muscles and then I breathe in and I breathe out. And instead of just breathing in and out, uh, I want to breathe in and out, you know, something that's substantial. Uh, And by the way, this whole breathing in, breathing out, it sounds kind of weird. Hey, if you think it sounds weird, then all I would ask you to do is go to the very last verse of the Psalms. You, you got a Psalter there, you got a Psalms, got your Bible, go to Psalm 150, verse 6. The guy that, uh, next to me uh, is a uh, biblical uh, expert, and he, uh, he works in the New Testament, but he, he works quite a bit with the Hebrew language as well. He says, Matt, one day he came over and says, hey, Matt, listen, I got an insight. And so he shared with me this insight. Psalm 150, verse 6. I said, yeah, 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 yeah. So I'm, I'm looking right at it. And this is how it reads in my translation. Everything that has breath shall praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. So I'm thinking, everything that has breath shall praise the Lord. Seems, I mean, how do you mess that up? He said, well, it's not messed up, but just in the Hebrew, it sounds a lot better. And so tell me about that. Well, the Hebrew says, let all breath praise the Lord. Not everything that has breath... Let all breath praise the Lord. Now, the minute he said that to me, I thought, you know, I bet it'd be a great exercise. Instead of getting some secular author to tell me what I need to be uh, concentrating on or meditating on, I wonder if I could just take something like a, a name of God. So I got, a, I got a friend that wrote a book called The Portraits of God. Let me go to one of those portraits. And there are eight major portraits, and there are, I think, 11 minor portraits, so I, I do them all during the month, and I've got 31 names for God, and I do one a day. So if today were say, the 15th of the month, I would do uh, the 15th one that I have listed. But the first one I have listed is uh, is good Shepherd, right? That my friend, Dr. Alan Coppage said that one of the key roles of God was Good Shepherd. So this is what I do. I breathe in and out the Good Shepherd. And I use all the words I can think of to worship the Good Shepherd. So there I am at 4 a.m. in my chair trying to get relaxed. And I breathe in. And I breathe out. Deep breaths. Breathe in. Breathe out. So I get my rhythm going a little bit, breathing. Then I start breathing. Good Shepherd. I adore you. Now, breathe the breathing, but I'll be thinking those words. Good shepherd, I worship you. Breathe in, good shepherd. Breathe out, I magnify you. And I go to the Psalms to find out all these really great, great, great worship words. Magnify, extol, exalt. And I breathe in a name of God, and I breathe out my worship let every breath praise the Lord. So I just kind of, I kind of view it as practice for what I want to do all day long. I want to breathe the name of God all day long. I want to breathe God. I want to breathe him in. I want to exhale every breath, praise the Lord. So I'll do that, you know, three, four, five minutes. That's it. Three, four, five minutes. And uh, I tell you what, it is a great start to a wonderful devotional time. That's when I do my devotions, usually about four to uh 515 530 or so and it's just had this wonderful time but it starts off with practicing every breath praising the lord using a name of god i, I just commend it to you and listen you could do all kinds of mantras and uh, you go to, go to the secular experts and and see what they're saying about listen what should we be meditating on what how can you do better than the father the son and the holy spirit breathing in a role of God, breathing in a portrait of God, breathing in the father, breathing in Jesus, breathing in the spirit. I, It is a beautiful, beautiful practice. I've I've loved it. And uh, the other thing that happens from time to time is simply this. I'll be clipping along my day and I'll, I'll say, boy, I got five minutes here. I'll come in to my office. Uh, I'll relax. I got a little uh, chair over here. that's kind of a nice cushiony thing. And I'll, I'll sit down in it and I'll just, uh, for whatever the role, whatever the portrait is that day, I'll use that to breathe in and worship. And it is a beautiful, beautiful way to keep God on your breath. <laughs> All right. Just, just FYI there. All right. Now, this is what I want to end up with today. Uh, there is a, uh, a, a group of people out there called Pocket. And they, they throw out columns from time to time. And uh, some of them are good. Some of them, you know, that's secular crowd. So what do you expect? But it, it's a, the one that I wanted to look at was how to raise a boy, bringing up a son fit for the 21st century. And I thought, whoa, I want in on this. And then I read this, the, the, uh, the subtitle increasing awareness of the price of toxic masculinity has led many parents to wonder how best to prepare the young men of the future. One father consults the experts. Well, I, I started reading. I thought, "Eh, no, 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 no. It just, no. (laughs) I know when the secularists go after toxic masculinity, they may be right at some points, but frequently they don't know how to raise boys. So I, I not only used to have a radio talk show, I used to have a column that, uh, that I'd write for the statewide daily here, two columns a week for the Jackson Clarion ledger. And it'd go across the state. And it was a, it was a lot of fun, but James Dobson, do y'all you, do you all remember James Dobson, right? He came out with a book called bringing up boys. And when that book came out, someone remarked to me upon hearing the, uh, hearing about the book. He said, shoot, Matt, you should have written that book. I mean, you you've actually done it. Well, I thought, well, the Dobson's done it too, but I get what they're saying bringing up boys, Matt, you raised five of them. Dobson's only got one. Now, whatever. Dobson, I love Dobson. And Dobson has some great advice in that book. But before I ever read it, I thought, let me write my own list. So I, I'm just going to go down this list. I've raised five boys. They, they all love the Lord. They're all in Christian service. They're all doing great things. And so I, I get that. So I, I just wrote a list of things here. How to raise boys. All right. You can disagree with it. Make your own list. This is my list. Number one, boys ought to have a vision for their future. Remember that one of the first things we talked about in this program, right? You need to know what the objective is. You need to be driving for that objective. You're going to be confused not only about your life, but about many things about your life if you don't drive for that objective. So know what you're doing. Know which way you're headed. And so have a vision for their future. And that is the parents ought to have a vision for their future. Know what you want them to be at age 18. So in in the book, we, we've written a book called uh, Discipleship in the Home. And one of the key features of that book is the age 18 list. What do we want the what, what do we want them to be when they head out of the doorway of the Freedman house? And uh, what do we want for them? You know, we brought up sexually. Uh, what do we want for them sexually? What do we, do we want them as far as money is concerned? What do we want them as far as what they know and what they can do, et cetera? It's quite a list, but this is what I said in the column. It says, it matters what you do for them when they're infants, toddlers, romping grade schoolers, and then teenagers. This vision thing has implications intellectually, emotionally, physically, but most of all, spiritually. What they should think about America, the kind of marriage you'd like them to be prepared for, their attitude about God, this is the stuff to have figured out long before their first birthday. Uh, Then this piece of advice, love plus discipline discipline plus love. It's hard to know which to put first there. But boys need a firm, disciplined hand from their daddy. They also need affection and tenderness. Now, I've never punished them without hugging them and kissing their face in the same day, frequently in the same moment. By the way, my boys can say yes, sir, and hug their dad with equal degrees of expertise, and they do. Next, rough and tumble. Boys need to be thrown in the air. Shown who can still win at arm wrestling in this house. Be trained how not to cry when pummeled by a pillow in the middle of the den. And know when to the stiff arm or just go ahead and slam into the opposition like Walter Payton used to do. And if you don't know who Walter Payton is, go YouTube it and enjoy the greatest running back that ever lived. Next, less is more. Less stuff never hurt a boy. There's something wrong with the family that lets their son spend inordinate amounts of time in front of computer games, television, and this year's newest plaything. Balls, Ball sticks and tents are still the ticket to real boy happiness. Stick them out in the backyard and throw those things out to them. Next, the Bible. And remember, no matter how much you hope they will first pick up on the compassion of Jesus and a relationship with him. Goliath and Samson are bigger attractions at first. They need to know those stories. Chores. Boys need to get off their tail ends and they need to work. They need to sweep, gather, chop, mow, clean, and lots and lots of it. Serve. Now you need to take them to church, y'all it was never a question in my household, hey, uh, does anybody want to go to church today? We would just head it out. We're going. That's what we do. That's what it means to be a freedom, and we are church people. But when they're at church, they need to find Christ. But when they find Christ, they need to know that we exist to serve this church, and everybody here is going to have a job inside the church doing something to build the body of Christ. Furthermore, we want everybody to serve someone and someones outside the church some of the things we would do with the kids is take them out to the abortion clinic every week. And uh, we would sing hymns and try to talk to the ladies as they came in to try to let them know, yes, you have a hope and a prayer and we can help you. Please love your child. We, we would do that sort of thing with the kids in tow. Uh, furthermore, we thought it was pretty important that not only did we do the service thing, but we would make sure they knew that it was something that, Makes a Christian a Christian, we are serving people, feet washing people. We head to the sound of the pain in our community. Let's find where the pain is, get out to it. and we'd also go to the nursing homes regularly. Boy, the kids are great at that. Uh, by the way, here's the next one: Yes, sir. Now, did I already say this? Boys need to learn these words and use them a hundred times a day. Yes, ma'am, too. uh singing. Nah. Oh yeah. Boys boys should never know a time when singing isn't normal. This includes the classics like David Crockett King of the Wild Frontier. They need to be able to sing that. I I mean I think. But also a mighty fortress is our god. And America the beautiful. These kinds of songs, they never should know a time in their life when singing isn't normal. Men sing. And then apologies. Brothers need to learn how to give them to each other, and the best model for this behavior is for dad to give one from time to time. Eating crow gets a little easier when you know it is a practice of men. And the last thing is this, me. My boys need me. All right, my dear friends, it's a wrap. It's been an honor to have you listening to Life Changing Discipleship with Matt Friedman. So check out our Facebook page, Life Changing Discipleship, and check out our books at Amazon.com. Just go ahead and type in Matt and into the search engine and uh, you're going to see all kinds of things that are offered. And always, always tell others about our podcast. And remember, my wife thanks you, my daughter thanks you, my sons and their wives thank you, and I can assure you that I thank you for listening to Life-Changing Discipleship today. Love God, live clean, keep the faith, make disciples, and God bless you, dear friends. See you back here real soon.